Let me give you a very warm welcome to this online broadcast from Trinity Church here in Aberdeen. This is a video that we've put together for Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is one of the most wonderful days of the year, and one of the most wonderful days at the heart of the Christian faith, where we celebrate the resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ, a wonderful, wonderful truth for us to treasure and, and to enjoy today. And so we're glad you're joining us and watching uh, wherever wherever you're doing this from, many watching at home uh, in their living rooms on some sort of device, you're very welcome indeed to be with us here today. My name is David Gibson. I'm the minister of Trinity Church. We're a, a congregation of Christian folks of all different ages um, from all across our city and further afield. And uh, we meet temporarily in a hotel, the Northern Hotel in Aberdeen. Uh, we are on the cusp of renovating our own premises right in the heart of the city on our website homepage, you'll be able to see a video that explains uh, our plans and hopes for the future. Uh, but all of that is on hold at the minute, isn't it, on these these strange days of lockdown. And so uh, people are watching, not all together, but uh, spread out um, across the city and across the world. You're very welcome indeed to join us together. What we're going to do is look at a part of the Bible, Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament. I'm going to read uh, those verses in just a moment. Here is a passage that takes us to the heart of the Christian faith on Easter Sunday, the meaning of the resurrection, what it means for us and for the world. And I'm going to read that in just a moment. And then today in our video, we have a couple of songs. There'll be a song after this. Then I will preach and explain the meaning of this passage for us and a, a song again at the end, at the end. So do read along with me if you can, Acts chapter 17 and reading from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. How do you know, how do you know 
four simple words in a question which we've been encouraging our children to ask as they grow up. Our conversations around the dinner table have started to develop in recent years. For many years, we've had children simply at the age where they just ask us a one word question. Why? Why? Why am I not allowed a phone until I'm 45? Why is this the rule about bedtime? Why? Why? Why is the small child's question, isn't it? And we're trying at the minute around our table with our kids to direct that question outwards to the world. In their classroom, at school, or whatever it is, wherever they're being taught, we want them to ask, how do you know? When people tell them things, we want them to have in their minds, how can you be sure about that? What's your evidence for that? Why is that the right thing to say? When they're told something, we don't want them just to take it at face value and just accept it. We want them to look at the reasons underlying it and to test them. We want them to seek assurance that what they're being told is right. I think a mind that is looking for assurance and that is looking for the right kind of certainty is a healthy mind, isn't it? It's, It's a good thing. Just a few weeks ago, I watched some church leaders in other parts of the world as the coronavirus was beginning to break on our shores. I watched some church leaders publicly say to their congregations, relax, you'll be fine. There is nothing to worry about. Stop worrying, you'll be fine. Well, if I was in their congregations, I would want to ask this question. How do you know? How can you say that? How do you know we'll be fine? The evidence suggested then Even then, and the reality proven since, is that not everybody has been fine. We have lost loved ones, haven't we, before their time because of this virus. Oh, evidence for grand claims is everything, isn't it? When people make grand statements, evidence is everything. Assurance is needed. Proof is required. Don't just say the banks will help, small businesses and the self-employed. How do we know they'll help? What's the evidence? Where's the proof? When someone makes a great claim and utters grand words, we want to see it, don't we, in black and white. We, we scurry off online. We check the small print. We look for the sign that helps us to know that what we've been told is true is in fact true. And this is how we live, by giving signs of assurance to people all the time. I take you to be my wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, until death us do part. I love you. How do I know you love me? The question comes back. I give you this ring as a sign of my love. There it is, you see, the the small print, the symbol, the the sign to point to the reality. It's there to, to show that what I've said is true. And friends, right now, right now in the middle of this coronavirus crisis, a beautiful thing is happening. You've probably seen this. I hope you've seen it all over the UK, maybe all over the world. These signs are appearing in people's windows. Here's the one that we've got in ours. The sign is a rainbow. 
It's a universal sign of hope. After the storm comes the rainbow. And this sign comes from the Bible. In fact, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, where after a flood that has destroyed life from the earth, God promises he will not do that again to the earth. And as assurance, as evidence, as proof, he sets a rainbow in the sky. So so to actually take a rainbow now and put it in our windows as a sign of hope is a wonderful thing. And it comes from God himself, the God who loves to give us answers when we ask him. But how do I know? Maybe today of all days, you've got questions for God. I don't know where in the world uh, you're watching this. But I know our Trinity Church family, myself, we are full of questions for God, aren't we? We ask questions all the time. And so what I want to do in this Easter Sunday sermon is is look at this part of the Bible that I just read from, because I want us to see today that God has given us the most wonderful answer to our, but how do I know, questions. How do I know you love me, God? How do I know you're there? How do I know there's hope in the midst of this crisis? How do I know? Friends, here's the thing to know today. The assurance God gives us, the signs that he gives us, they just get bigger and bigger and brighter and clearer all the way through the Bible. God loves giving us proof. He loves it. And in these verses, God has done something which is the most wonderful assurance of hope, the most astonishing proof that he is running the world rightly. And I want to show you it. Here are three things in what we read together. Three things. Here is Paul, one of the earliest Christian leaders. He is speaking here to men and women who are not Christians, not Christian people, And we get to eavesdrop on what he tells them. He tells them three things that we need to know about God. Number one, number one, we live in God's world, not he in ours. We live in God's world, not he in ours. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Because God made everything, just look again at that verse, look how inclusive it is, the world and everything in it. Because he made everything, we shouldn't think that therefore he lives in things that we have made. It's kind of simple logic, isn't it? He's Lord of heaven and earth. Makes sense, doesn't it? When one of my boys spends the afternoon with scissors and glue making something, When it's dinner time and we go looking for him, we don't go looking inside the thing that he's made. He hasn't shrunk. The the creature who made it is not greater than the, 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 the creation that he made is not greater than the creator, the one who made it. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And we are living inside his world, not he inside our world. I I just wonder if the coronavirus has exposed how we think here. We do think it's our world, don't we? We do think we're in charge. We write the rules, make the plans, set the agenda. And then along comes an infection that spreads throughout the earth. And we realise we are not the masters of our fate that we thought we were. 
It's true, isn't it? Haven't you felt powerless recently? Robbed of the ability to do so many of the things we normally do? Maybe God is showing us this is not our world. It doesn't belong to us to do what we like with it. We are not in charge. I am not the Lord of my life. Truth number one, we live in God's world, not he in ours. Truth number two, we are dependent on God, not he on us. We are dependent on God, not he on us. Look at verse 25. Not only does he not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's very easy to treat God like the household pet. Your, Your cat or your dog, if you have one at home, is dependent on you for food and shelter. And of course, after time in many homes, no matter how much the kids promise to walk it and wash it and brush it and feed it and look after it, after time, after a bit of time, pretty soon the pet just becomes part of the furniture, don't they? And we only pay it a bit of attention now and again whenever we think they need it. Look what Paul is saying here. If we treat God like that, it is an incredible reversal of roles. We think we'll give God a bit of our time at Christmas, nice carol service, a bit of time at Easter. Do you think he needs it? Think he's lonely without us until those moments? Twiddling his thumbs, waiting for us to come? No, he doesn't need anything that I can give him. And quite the opposite. In fact, all of life flows from him. From one man he made every nation with the aim that every person in every nation would reach out to him and find him. And so, number three, we will answer to God, not he to us. We will answer to God, not he to us. Look at verse 30, the times of ignorance. Well, let's read from verse 29. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the ardent imagination of man. If if we are living, moving, breathing beings, we shouldn't think that God is static, like a statue, like gold or silver. Now, the times of believing that, thinking that, verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, if you look at verses 29 and 30 again, look, here's what's happening in these verses. Paul is telling the world that the mantra that it lives by, the mantra that it lives by of You do you. You do you is false. You decide for yourself who you will be. You decide what code you will live by, what what shape your morals and your life will take. You do you. You can find fulfillment in yourself. You can create your own realities, your own right and wrong. You are the creator of your own little world. And if you are the creator of your own little world, then you are also your own little God, aren't you? No one tells a God what to do. We decide for ourselves. Paul says that mantra, everything in that mantra is false. We live in God's world, not he in ours. We depend on God for life, not he on us. 
And here's the thing, because of this, because this is true, we will answer to God, not he to us. We will answer to God, not he to us. Verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See how it's that that word everything has flown through these verses. He made everything. He owns everything. He gives life to everything. He can call everyone to account. You know, soon after the lockdown took effect in the Western world, somebody said on Twitter, it is amazing how fast our society went from you do you, you are the boss of you. It's amazing how fast our society went from that to instead, you have a moral responsibility to love your neighbour by abiding by these rigid rules. It's what happened, isn't it? Overnight, the complete freedom to self-actualize, self-fulfill, self-discover, self-define. And overnight, our governments were telling us, you must do ABC. In other words, you do you doesn't work. Me doing me doesn't work. And we've just seen, haven't we, in all these past weeks firsthand how it doesn't work. Me doing me in a time of national crisis leads to me doing you over, infecting you, harming you, damaging you, damaging the NHS, losing lives. Isn't that what we've seen? So in these past weeks, a man flies from New York to Florida, knowing that he was ill with the coronavirus, knowing he had it in his body. He infects several other people on the flight and many become seriously ill. That airline that he flew on have now banned him for life from all future flights. Him doing him, being true to himself, damaged other people. A man called Nicholas Walterstorff, who tragically lost his son in a climbing accident. Nicholas Walterstorff said this, when we have overcome absence with phone calls, when we have overcome winglessness with aeroplanes, when we have overcome summer heat with air conditioning, when we have overcome all these things and many more besides, then there will abide two things with which we must cope forever, the evil in our hearts and death. All else we can overcome, it looks like we can master everything, but the evil in our hearts remains me doing me and death. And so look, says Paul here in these verses, look look at the way, these ways that we've turned the tables on God and put ourselves on the throne and thought that we can live how we like and do what we like and even worship how we like, worshipping the things we've made with our own two hands, the the shiny objects that seem to give us so much satisfaction, worshipping the things we've made instead of worshipping the one true living God. Well, says Paul, God has now raised his hand and called time. One day he will do it. Enough is enough. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has fixed a day, Paul says, when he will take the whole world and usher the world into his courtroom and call us to order. Silence, please. And he will judge the world. Don't you think that's what we need most? Actually, when you stop and think about it, somebody to put things right, 
somebody to sort things out. What is the greatest need in the world in this moment of crisis? Why are we checking the news every day and waiting for the updates from Downing Street, from the White House, from the World Health Organization? The greatest need is leadership. Somebody to be in charge, somebody to provide comfort. Some, some, somebody has said that when it is cold, people grab their coats. But when it is cold, leaders start a fire. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? The, the, the human instinct is to look after myself, buy my rice, my pasta, my toilet roll. But leaders are different. Their instinct is to do something that will help themselves and help 10 other people at the same time. Oh, friends, what our world needs is somebody who can be like that, not just for 10 people, but for the world, for everybody. We need someone to put things right, not just for themselves, but for everyone. It's what we love, isn't it? Imagine you turn on your news in the morning and somebody says, I've, I've got a cure for this virus. And it's free and it can go global. Oh, how we love them. L- look what Paul says here in verse 31. God has fixed a day he and he alone knows exactly when it will be when he will gather the whole of humanity the world every human being who has ever lived gather us all together and he has a man who will judge us rightly perfectly in righteousness there will be no miscarriages of justice there will be no case not proven verdicts the trial will not collapse there will Be sufficient evidence in every case for this man, the judge, to sift everything perfectly and to reach the right verdict in every single case. Oh, it is the most wonderful of news for a world that is twisted, twisted out of shape with wrongness and brutal evil. Every injustice out there in the world that you have ever suffered and every injustice in here that I have ever inflicted on others. These verses simply say God will not tolerate it forever. He he has been patient with the world he's made. As we worship anything and anyone but him, as we do us, but one day we will answer to him. And so, friends, I want to take you back to what I began with. Here is the million-dollar question. These are grand words, aren't they? Great words. How do we know? How do we know? Imagine Paul was sitting right beside you today, reading these verses to you in person. Uh, He gets down to verse 31. He knows what you're thinking. He knows you want to ask him this. Paul, how do you know? What's the evidence, Paul? What's the sign that this is true, that this will happen? What assurance can you give me that this is true? Life after death, judgment after death, really? How do you know? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given proof, assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There it is, friends. God has guaranteed the justice that we want. It is fixed. It is certain. It is as sure as that seat that you're sitting on watching this screen. It is made sure and certain. 
It is more sure and certain than what you will be doing at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And the reason it is fixed and the reason it is guaranteed and the reason it is certain is that God has raised from death the man who will do the judging. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the grave is the evidence we need that there is life after death. There's the proof. How do I know there will be judgment? How do I know that what, how do I know what happens to me when I die? How do I know there's a heaven to gain and a hell to be shunned? Because the resurrection of Jesus from death shows us there is life after death. It would be pretty hard, wouldn't it, to believe in life after death, to believe in this language about judgment to come after death if there was no proof of it. If someone hadn't already entered death and come out the other side. Now, I think when you look at these verses, this is slightly different here, isn't it, from how we normally think about the resurrection. Christian people are used to being asked, aren't we? We're used to being asked, what's the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? What assurance can I have that that really happened? Uh, It's a great question. It's a wonderful question. If that's your question today, here's the rainbow in our window again. And I want I want you to notice the website address there. I want to encourage you to visit eastermeanshope.com where you'll find a world of helpful resources. The message of Easter is that Jesus of Nazareth, executed by crucifixion, three days later rose again from the dead, his lifeless body reviving, his blood flowing through his veins again, the tomb in which he was laid broken open and he shattered death's hold on him. Death could not hold him. It is the most audacious, wonderful, central claim of the Christian faith. If it is not true, there is no point to any of this. Turn off the video. Go to Netflix or Amazon Prime, whatever. If it is not true, I for one will be taking down that rainbow from our window. If you want to know the evidence for the resurrection itself, please visit that website or Contact me directly. My email is here on our church website. I would be delighted to discuss this with you. But friends, if the truth of the resurrection is something that you already believe today, if you love it and cherish it, then do just notice this as we finish. I want you to build this into your Easter worship. Just notice this. Verse 31 is not a verse giving us assurance of the resurrection. Do you notice that? It is not a verse giving us assurance of the resurrection. It is a verse giving us assurance of judgment to come by using the resurrection as proof. See the difference? Verse 31 is a verse giving us assurance of judgment to come. And here's the proof Christ raised from the dead. If you want to know today whether one day all will be well, whether one day beyond the grave wrongs can be righted, look at the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. There is life beyond the grave. God has given assurance to all that this is so by raising one man in advance from the dead. The man who has entered death and travelled through it and come out the other side of it is all the proof we need, isn't it? That death is not the end. On the other side, 
is Jesus the judge who will judge the world in righteousness. I want to challenge you today to look at the claims of the Christian faith. If you are searching for answers in a time of crisis, there is a God who can conquer death. And who has conquered death in raising Christ from a cold, dark tomb. To stand outside of it, risen, alive. I also want to comfort you today with these words. If you are someone who has suffered terribly, whether through this crisis or through some injustice done to you. And you are wondering, will my tears ever have their day in court? I've been trampled on, sidelined, neglected. Will justice ever be done? How will I know? Death is not the end, friends. You know, you know sometimes the most, the most heinous crimes never get their day in court, do they? The worst of despots puts a gun to their own head or a, roos, a, a noose around their own neck and they disappear into oblivion, leaving a world of carnage and hurt and destruction behind them. And there seems to be no justice, no one to blame, no one to carry the can, no, no balm for the wounds. No comfort for the afflicted. Apart from here. Apart from here. You see what Paul is saying? Look, there is a judge who has been raised from the dead. Death was not the end for Jesus. And so death will not be the end for anybody else either. Beyond the grave there is judgment to come. We will all meet Jesus the judge. We will all meet him. And God has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. For some of us, I know watching this, well, it, it, it's not so much that we've suffered injustice. It's just that we've suffered. We're damaged. Our bodies are diseased. Our minds are tired, whether through, whether through long years of life or even through short years, we have cried more than anyone else would ever believe. And on every hand around us, everything seems broken. Everything seems grey. The clouds just seem to roll over the horizon day by day. My dear friends, brothers and sisters, in this world of pain, God has given assurance by raising Jesus from the dead that life wins Life wins and one day righteousness will triumph. Righteousness will prevail. I'd love you to know that from today onwards. To, to face the darkness and to face the trial. To look at perplexity and crisis and to know that Easter means hope. To look at it all, whatever is rolling through your life, to look at it all and to say I know how this story ends. I know what the last chapter will be. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, I know where this is all heading. I know he holds time and the future in his wise, loving, nail-pierced, judging hands. I know. I know. Because of an empty tomb, I know 
because the judge, the risen Jesus, is waiting. Amen.